what are we talking about today? Line number eight? Line number eight. Line number eight. There's 10 eight overall? Nine. Oh, eight, There's nine. nine. Nine, okay. Oh, this is the beginning so of the two end. two more. Yes. Wow. Yeah, mm-hmm. next week will be our last in the Nine Lies About Work series. Wow. We've come a long way. Yeah. And we're two in a row like this. I really like this chapter. Igor, what do you think about it? Yeah, big fan. And I think even Charles will be a fan once we run him through it. Yeah. So we'll give some context, Charles, since there's some nuance, just like the other chapters around what the words mean and stuff. So the lie is work-life balance matters most, which on the surface causes you to raise an eyebrow. And then the corresponding truth is love in work matters most. Love and work in, love love in work. Love say, in work. Okay. Yeah. Love in mm. work matters most. Interesting. I think the authors really hit their stride when they focus on meta work subjects and how to think about them and how to pull them out of your team and explore them in conversations. This is an area worth mining, both personally and, and on your team. And the quote that sticks out, I think really towards the end of the chapter is, burnout isn't the absence of balance, but the absence of love. And what they mean is like loving what you do. And so this whole fundamental premise of the chapter is like work is hard. The only it's toil, right? The only way to do it sustainably is to have material areas of the work that you do that you really love and enjoy. Mm-hmm. And it was cool. They brought up this example of an anesthesiologist. What mm-hmm. was that guy's name? Eric? Uh, I don't recall. Yeah. And so they were interviewing doctors in the national health healthcare system which I think is in the UK, and there, there's a heavy degree of, of burnout and their like suicide rates are higher for physicians in this system and things like that. And so it's really like worth exploring what's so crazy about the, the work-life balance, quote-unquote, of the physicians in the National Healthcare Service. And so they were interviewing this guy and this doctor, and he said, and he was really like into his job. And as they started exploring it, he really, he started out saying, I really don't like the burden of patients, and the, the burden of them getting well on me. I don't like dealing with them. I don't like the follow-up visits. I don't like explaining things to them. And they're like, well, isn't that your job? What's going on here? His, his name was Miles, by the way. Miles. And so what about your job do you like? Because you seem very happy as an anesthesiologist. And he's like, I love in the room the responsibility of someone teetering on in the balance of life and death. Like they're, they're, you put them to sleep. They're like, you're never just out or awake. You're always like, there's always this pendulum. And so you have to keep someone like really balanced the whole time. They're on the operating table, sometimes for 16 hours. And he really likes the nerding out about the intricacies of making sure that the patients are like at perfect stasis within a procedure. And when they go ask other doctors that have the exact same job, some of them like the patient stuff. Some of them really get into what is consciousness and exploring that. And they all have the same job, but they all love like very different parts of it. And it's those things that you find as you practice your craft that really create this aspect of work that keeps you going over the long period, over a long period of time. And, and that's Miles's love in work. Yeah. Yeah. Is, is like being able to ride that edge. I'm curious, do the authors in the book, they're not, it doesn't sound like it because Miles didn't say this. They're not saying that you should, you need to find work that you love doing all the time, every time, like day in and day out, no. every hour of the day. They're it's saying just, the opposite. Yeah. 
They're saying, well, first they're saying work is hard. The magic number is like 20%. If you love around 20% of your job, Mm -hmm. you're in a really good spot and you actually get diminishing returns pretty quickly after that. And it's not a, it's not a cure-all, right? It's the thing that helps things be sustainable long-term. That makes sense. Yeah. Because if they were saying like, hey, you need to find something that you love doing. And if you find your, follow your passion, you'll find a job that you love doing every hour of every day. I'm like that. I just think that's a myth. Like, I, I think there's always going to be a part of our job that is toil. I like that. I like that word. It's like work is toil. That certainly resonates with me because there are parts of my job that I just do because I have to legally bound to do it. So you get to and, do the things later that you love to do. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I have been, I do this exercise with some people that I work with about designing your ideal week and just, just imagine Sunday through Saturday and with all the things that are on your plate, if you could ideally structure your week to do all of the things that you have to do and that you want to do, how would you structure your week? Like where would you block off time to do a workout or take the dog for a walk or do deep work and process email and do one-on-ones? And when people do that, I ask them, I was like, all right, what are the best parts of your week? What are the highlights? Are you doing something every week that you love? Yeah, I don't think I use that word, but that that totally resonates with me. Robert, you and I spoke at one of our onboarding training classes. That that's like a huge energy boost for me. I love doing that. I rarely do it, yeah, because we only have a handful of those a year. But I try to find things that are like that and disperse them throughout the the year, so that I've always got something to give me a boost. And yeah, I like it. I'm a fan. Yeah, that's a really good point. You and I will give a dozen presentations, work-related presentations over the course of a year, ranging from six people to 130 people. None of that is mandatory. Like Mm -hmm. Very few people in our roles do that. It's something that we like doing. We get a lot of energy out of and want to get better at. And we work that into our job description, right? Like Those are things that needed to be done, but those weren't necessarily part of our job description. They said that in the book, there's a quote, They're talking about someone else, but I'll just read it. This person didn't find this work. She didn't happen upon it fully formed and waiting for her. Instead, she made it. She took a generic job with a generic job description. And then within that job, she took her love seriously and gradually, little by little, a lot over time. And then she turned the best of her job into most of her job. And so that's what we're talking here. Mm -hmm. It's not immediate, but over the course of quarters and years and things like that, you can start to carve into your role, things that you really enjoy doing. Yeah. Yeah. Designing your job while you're in in the job. Yeah. And then your job becomes an expression of you. And if you can work that over time, then the the idea of the book is your professional life will be fulfilling and therefore will not negatively impact your personal life to the degree that it could. And they threw a Greek word in there, Robert. You remember that? No, not at the top of my head. What what did they say? The Greek word was eudaimonia. Oh, no, I don't oh. remember that. You know, Maybe I just glossed over it. Yeah. Eudaimonia, which they say sounds like a cleaning product, actually means the fullest and purest expression of you in your most elevated state. It's the good life. And that's the aspiration, right? Yeah. That's, that's the aspiration. And you're lucky if you get that 20% of the time at work. The great thing is the encouraging thing there is 20% is more than enough. That's all you have to hit. So it's not like it's got to be great every day. I think this makes a lot of sense, especially for us. We're at the 
stage in our career where we can adjust and adapt our job description, essentially, to include more of those things that give us joy, that we love, that we find meaningful, and that we derive meaning and value from. When you were telling me about the story in the book about the anesthesiologist, is that right? That's Miles? Mm -hmm. Yep. Mm -hmm. It reminded me of a story. I'm going to butcher it. I don't remember the details, but it was a, it was about a janitor. It was about a janitor in a hospital, actually. And I don't even remember where I learned this story. I think it was through maybe one of the meditation groups that I've, I've been a part of. And I think there was a patient recovering in a room who was really just down on themselves, just given maybe the prognosis that they received or the disease, or maybe they just recovered from a surgery or something like that. And this janitor would come in and clean, clean the room you know, every single day and would always seem to be cheery and happy. And the story is that they end up having a conversation and the, the patient asks the janitor, like, hey, why are you so happy? You're a janitor. Like you clean up trash, like you clean up the floors in places that are really messy, right? like in a hospital setting. And that person doesn't have the ability to change their job description, not in the way that we do. So I'm, I'm trying to offer this as a counterpoint and maybe an alternative view of this finding love and work. The janitor responded back with, hey, I'm not a janitor. Like my job is to create the most pristine, clean environment to accelerate health and recovery for people in the hospital. Whoa, that's like a major reframing of what their job description is and why they're doing what they're doing. Because the job description is like clean the floors X number of times every hour, every day or something like that. Empty the trash. And this person is like, no, I want to clean the windows so you can look out and see the beautiful trees in the just outside the room. I want to make sure that you've got a pleasant smelling room because that's important for your recovery. And that's not changing your job description. That is a, that's something else. Was, and, and I guarantee you that was not the intention when the job was started. That was something that was chiseled away at over time and satisfaction that was gleaned from a job that was less than ideal most of the time. Yep. I'm pretty sure that person did not go into that job thinking those things. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's a distillation of... Yeah. maybe years and a satisfaction that's grown out of, of what you work on. And that's, it ties into strengths as well. So if Dan Pink, Cal Newport talk about this you know, autonomy, mastery purpose, if you're not in a position to choose your own destiny, you can certainly develop mastery over your craft. And that unlocks the autonomy side later and helps drive the, the purpose discussion. That's a self-reinforcing loop. So the point is to focus on mastery. Like, I want to make this area pristine. There's a mastery component there that unlocked the other two pieces of autonomy and purpose, I think, is how that equation works. So if you're not sure where to start, I think honing your craft, focusing on that is is the right place. I would say they they found purpose in what they were doing. And I, and I think you can do that without mastery, right? It's like, they yeah, they probably hated their job. Maybe. I don't know. Maybe they're grateful for it. But I guess maybe what I'm trying to say is that even if you don't love anything in your job, if you can change your job, like what we're describing, and do more of what you, what gives you energy, great. And if you can do that over time, wonderful. But I think also it's, it's possible to keep doing the same things that you're doing and think about reframing the purpose of what you're doing. And maybe that's what I'm saying. I think maybe purpose draws people. I think that's super rare, though, I would say. Like the, this idea that you 
have or a probability that you have a passion that you're born with. You just inherently, and it's something that you're good at. There's a lot of things I'm passionate about, like golf, I'm terrible at. But it, it's something you're good at, something you'll love your entire life, and is actually useful. Like the combination of those things are, are really slim. And the argument, I think, is that you build passion over time by focusing on mastery. Mm. And if, you're, if we're extrapolating this to a team or an organization... You can articulate through messaging, through some of the rituals we talked about in prior episodes, this idea of purpose. But like we've seen with the anesthesiologist example, like that comes in different flavors for different people. Like you really can't control that. You really can't affect that too much as a leader, but you can help with the mastery and autonomy side. And so I think that's a very healthy place to focus, both personally at the individual level and then at at the team level as well. Mm, Yeah. That is so true. Like meaning and purpose cannot be given to a person. That has to be discovered by the individual. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. As leaders, we we do have the ability to influence and encourage the autonomy and the and the mastery side. Yeah. Yeah. And then towards the end, they use an analogy of weaving a thread, but say like the world's not gonna doesn't care about what you like or what your purpose is. Like the only person who can stop and be attentive enough to identify those as you and how do you weave those intelligently into the fabric of your work like that sole responsibility is on Mm. the individual and then if you are leading a team or an organization having the discussions to probe and help your people think about those questions while focusing on that mastery competence side and giving delegation and, and autonomy to do their jobs and do it well without micromanagement or things like that are i think right in the sweet spot of how operating is an effective leader, what that looks like. Yeah. So back to work-life balance, I tell people in our onboarding class, that's a myth. Like there is no such thing as work-life balance. What do you all say to that? I I think it's, let me give you the more. I say it's a myth, but it's a very useful thing to talk about uh, because it is uh, a source of pain and difficulty for people. But I, I just think it's the wrong mental model for discussing something deeper, which I, in my onboarding class, I talk about perma V actually. And I say, hey, a, a, a more useful mental model is thinking about well-being overall using perma V, which we've talked about before. But what do you all say when people come and talk about work-life balance? Do you talk about autonomy, mastery, purpose? Do you talk about balancing work and life? How do you typically respond when you see somebody burnt out or struggling you know, to juggle life What's your typical go-to advice? Igor, I'll let you go first, dude. Yeah. So this is advice that I give to myself in my inside voice, but then I also share with others on my team that are processing through this sort of thing. And one of the things that I noticed with myself is that feeling of being tired or whatever. It actually doesn't always tend to come with like the number of hours that you're working. I think it connects to things that like give you energy. And let's take Miles then, an anesthesiologist. If he had to spend most of his time, or or not even say most of his time, let's say 20 hours a week, working with patients, explaining the drug cocktails that he uses to them and checking in on them, and that's all he did, he'd probably be burnt out. But you stick Miles in a room for 60 hours, and he's just turning the knobs and keeping people in that perfect sense of stasis. And he'd probably be full of energy. And so my advice is to find the things that are energy producing and invest more. And it sounds like 
counterintuitive advice sometimes because if somebody comes to you and like, hey, look, I'm burnt out. I think the most natural advice is reaction is, oh, let's figure out a way for you to like work less. And and I think that's part of it, but it's part of doing less of the things that burn you out and finding more things that give you energy and like leaning into those. Because if you spend more time into energy producing activities, they're actually going to help you build resilience in the areas where stuff that's training that you may not be able to like very quickly pass off. And those energy producing things also may not be work related. They may be things in your personal life, maybe working out or even like volunteering. In fact, for me, I really enjoyed like working with kids and volunteering uh, for this organization locally to help kids learn engineering and those sort of things. And even though that added quite a bit of time every week, overall, I uh, felt like I had more energy when I was back at work because I was really, even though I was spending more time doing stuff, I, it didn't feel that way. And so that's probably my advice is find things that give you energy and lean into those because you, you don't always have the power to reduce your energy draining activities, especially right away. Like over time, that's probably more plausible, but those things normally aren't just like a switch you can turn off. So that's my advice. So you're, you're deeply aligned with the direction of the book. Yeah, yeah. And, and I had this attitude, I think, before I read the book. And then when I read it in the book, I was like, yeah, this makes complete sense to me. I feel like I'm most balanced in my personal life when I'm professionally exhausted. And I don't really, sometimes don't even need 40 hours a week to do that. But I definitely need something interesting, challenging, difficult to work on with a sufficient degree of autonomy. That's actually one thing if you want to really burn me out at work, like ultra fast, it's to take away autonomy. Like I, I really rebel against that. So uh, that's a key. If there's a thing that I love about work, it's the ability to have, to chart my own path. And so if I don't have that in my professional life, then my personal life suffers as well. Even if I don't have that much on my plate, like a border collie in that regard, that balance that you said, Charles, I think the term balance is the right term. Our definition, our connotation of that when we talk about work-life balance is out of whack. We don't mean what it really means, which is a ongoing adjustment and tweaking of the things you have in your life from a holistic like mental health perspective. We just mean workload and number of hours per week. And so there's definitely, it's definitely a more nuanced discussion. I think is my response to your question. A practical thing, though, I do recommend, and we talked about this before, too, is sometimes you just need to take a break, though. Take a week off if you can, reset, sometimes two, and really use that time to recharge a little bit. And then you can come back having missed a week or two of meetings and think the world goes on without you. And you can see, you, like Igor said, you may not have the power to remove all the stuff you don't like doing from your job. I don't know many people who do, but there's probably some things that kind of go on just fine without you. And if you're anything like me, you hold on to stuff because it makes you feel like you're important and needed when you actually don't need to do it at all anymore. And so if you can stop doing some low energy things, that would be good. Another thing you could do is look forward in your calendar four or five, six weeks, right? You have probably hardly anything going on there. And so this stuff that kind of creeps in, how useful is it? And maybe there's some tweaking to do there. So from a removing the bad aspect, I think I'm in line with y'all as well there. Yeah, I think what I typically do is tell people to take some time off, but I, I don't emphasize the time off piece. I actually emphasize the re-entry piece. It's like, all right, take some time off. 
Now, before you come back and you jump right into back into you know the same old meetings, the same old responsibilities, what are you going to? What do you want to change? You know, that, that's where that ideal week kind of comes into play a little bit. And it's interesting because some people, when I give them that exercise, they immediately latch on and they think very holistically and idealistically about it. And they and it looks pretty good. And then it's something that we can incrementally work towards. I like what you said, Robert, about finding that the tweaks here and there as time goes on. It's one of the co-founders of our company would say it's work-life wobble, not a work-life balance, which I always like the wobble. I think that more accurately captures the our day-to-day experience. But there are some people with some with a break. Even with a break, you take off some of that immediate pressure. You ask them, what is an ideal state for you to be in when you return? They draw a complete blank. And they're like, well, I don't know. I guess maybe it's working 50 hours instead of 50. No, I, I think we can do better there. And it, and I wonder if in in some situations, people who feel like they're out of balance, if they feel like they lack the power and the authority to do anything different. And and, and if you're burnt out, I, I think probably most people feel that way. And I know when I'm burnt out, I feel like I have no control. It's like I really have no control to change what I do, when I work, how much I work. And so that that's why it's a it's a tough place to reason in that situation. But there's I when we when I'm talking to people about ideal week and we identify a really high priority thing that isn't urgent that people want to do, but they seemingly can't, I ask them a simple question is hey, if they have kids, I, I ask, if you had to take your kid to the hospital at this time either planned or an emergency, right? you would drop whatever you're doing, you would go do it right? with conviction, easily, hopefully. I'm sure maybe there are people out there that, that wouldn't. There are certain things that we are absolutely willing to say, ah, takes precedence over any work-related thing, hands down, no debate. But we need more of those sorts of things. Right? Why does it have to be, oh, I got to go to the doctor? And that, that allows people to feel like they have a pass to skip a meeting or to move or recurring meeting. I don't know. It's just very interesting how we don't do that more often for things like... I think we do conflate like not being able to set boundaries or having boundaries put upon us professionally. Like we think they're much more immutable, non-negotiable than I think they are. Almost in every job, uh, I think you're right. When I like what you said is, hey, take two weeks off, the world keeps going. The project or the program or the business didn't come to a grinding halt because you left... That's a good reminder that I think can help to loosen some of those rigid, fake, you know, boundaries that we place around how we need to spend our time. Anyway, rambling a little bit, but hopefully some of that made sense. Yeah, I think we're aligned. So we have some practical tips here. Definitely figuring out what you love about your job. And I think in the book, they talk about just keep a log when you do something and you get a feeling of, I hate this, I dread this, write it down. And when you get really energized and your sense of time collapses and you don't know where the three hours went that you just spent working on something. If you get really energized about something, write that down too. And over time, you'll have a pretty pretty good understanding of the things you enjoy, the things you don't. You probably already know. You could probably get 80% of the 80% correct right off the bat and simplistically try to do more of the things you love or at least find the things you love and then do less of the things you don't. The ideal week is a great exercise to figure that out. Some of the five-year planning and 
those types of things could be helpful too. It it makes you think outside of the here and now, which mm-hmm. I think is good. Yep. Take some time off if you can. If you're a leader, try to spark these conversations within your team. You should probably know what aspects of everyone on your team, what they love and what they don't. It doesn't mean you have to do anything about it right off the bat, but it would help to know. And uh, I think over, and, and this is a thing that is built and cultivated and tweaked over time. These are not big shifts that are made immediately. But this is a journey. Yeah, agree. hundred percent. Cool. Any other thoughts on this one? No, I just, I think we're in total alignment on, on the approach here. And I, I do agree that Charles, it is good to take that break and then re-enter with a different approach. Because if you just think that time off isn't going to solve your issue and you take a week off, two weeks off and you come back and if it's the same mode, you're very quickly going to find yourself back in the same place you were before you left. Yeah. Let me tell a quick story on where I learned that. This was after my first sabbatical. Gosh, maybe this was five years ago. I took off three months. I spent a week in the mountains meditating in silence. You all remember that? And right after that, about a week later, I started back at work. And so coming from this, hey, I'd been out of work for three months. I was in the mountains, very introspective, very silent, very slow paced, jumping right back into management team life with recurring meetings and pressures and stresses. And the first meeting that I attended on the very first day back, I physically felt ill. Like I felt nauseous and I had a headache. I was like, wait a second, like this some of this is just re-entry period. I had an extreme break, right? This, this is not two weeks. This was three three months. But I had a necessity. I needed to think. It's like, hey, do I really need to to do this the way that I did it before? And, and I really started to experiment with changing things up. And some of it was just changing my mentality about the meetings that I was going into. Some of them, it was like, no, I probably don't need this meeting anymore. But it certainly was, Robert, to your point, it's not like I just declared calendar bankruptcy and declined everything. I didn't do that, right? But but it is interesting. We get used to we get used to a certain pace, a certain degree of stress, and if we're resilient, we can handle some ups and downs. If we're not, that's when we get into burnout, and taking a break can help us to see how out of whack we were when before we were taking that break and we owe it to ourselves and the people around us and to our teams and our families and friends to to be thoughtful about how we're showing up, which is why I love any holistic view of of a person when we talk about well-being or work-life balance or anything like that. So I enjoyed the conversation. Thanks, guys. Yeah, yeah, it was good. So one more, leadership is a thing, which I haven't read. This is the most confusing one, so I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, I, th- I think it'll be good. I, and I think it's, a, it's an important one to, to, I think, read because some people might think that leadership is out of their reach because they don't have one of the common traits that's connected with, quote, being a leader. And so I think this chapter turns that on its head. Oh, okay. If they go down that path, I, I think I'm going to agree. With, yeah, I was going to say that seems to align with, Robert, your yeah. philosophy for sure that you've talked about here. Yeah, it, It's not so much a philosophy as it is... Uh, universal law of physics or fact Hmm. that leadership is a series of behaviors and behaviors can be learned. Yeah. Like anyone has those. If you have the ability to exhibit a behavior and learn from feedback, then Hmm. you can be a leader. Yeah. No problem. So I haven't read it yet, but I will have the next time we talk and that's the perspective I'll bring. So there you go. 
Cool. Hope yeah. All right. Good talking to you. Thanks, y'all. Thanks, Enjoy y'all. your long weekend. All right. Bye. That's it for today. Thanks for joining. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter at WannaGrabCoffee or drop us a line at hello at WannaGrabCoffee.com. 